Ukraine continues to fight and incrementally liberate its occupied territories from the Russian invaders. At the same time, its Western backers debate the war's likely endgame and its aftermath. The international response to Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine remains inadequate to the task of achieving a full victory and often lags dangerously behind Ukraine's requirements, which causes the war to be more protracted, resulting in a greater loss of life on the Ukrainian side. But Russia poses a serious threat to the rules-based international order, and is the West response sufficiently robust in defense of the values it espouses? A recent Chatham House report rang alarm bells and recommended that Western military support to Kiev should be redoubled before it's too late. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. Please like and subscribe to see more of the great speakers and content that we feature, and do consider becoming a patron to support the work of the channel. James Nixie leads the Russia-Eurasia program at Chatham House, and his principal expertise concerns the relationships between Russia and other post-Soviet states. He has published papers and articles in books and journals and commented extensively in the national and global media. He has also organized hundreds of private expert roundtables on Russia and Eurasian affairs while at Chatham House. His publications include The Long Goodbye, Waning Russian Influence in the South Caucasus and Central Asia, and Putin Again, Implications for Russia and the West, and many others. Uh, it's a, a huge delight, James, to welcome you to the channel. The honor is mine. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Well, we're going to talk about this incredible report that uh, Chatham House uh, pulled together with, I think, nine contributors. We're going to be speaking over the next few weeks to uh, most of them. We've already spoken to uh, Timothy Ash about uh, the economic implications of sanctions and, of course, uh, how we can use Russian um money uh, in order for the rebuilding um but we're going to we're going to go through and really unpack what is an incredibly comprehensive report um, but it, could we start by sort of going into why this report was commissioned why it was felt to be such an important time to release such a major study well jonathan thank you for your kind words and yeah it was indeed one of those instances where you've got to Forget the economics of think tanks and the serious questions of fundraising, the realities in which we all live, and ask yourself, what's the most important thing we can do at this time? Because, of course, our lives did change uh, in February of last year. No matter how long we'd been calling out Russia for its crimes and misdemeanors and the previous wars it had instigated, then this was on a different scale altogether. And it still is. And Ukraine's existence is still very much under threat. And as you just intimated, it's it, it, and I, I was very I was very wary of this because I work with Ukrainian friends and colleagues and I was wary about taking the agency away from Ukraine because you notice the subtitle is safeguarding Europe. Um, but uh, because, you know, Ukraine, Ukraine is uh, Ukraine. You, the choice of Ukrainians was not to fight or not to fight, but it was it was to fight or, or to see, cease to exist. Um, and I suppose that's not quite the same choice as in the West, the larger West, the wider West. Um, but the implications for global security are such that we felt that that was a good way of warning Western policymakers uh, of the seriousness of the situation. And as you alluded to, the, the response so far has indeed uh, been insufficient. And that, that might seem strange to say, because, of course, it's been unprecedented as well. There's force, force eight, force nine sanctions. You know the, the kind of weaponry delivered to uh, a Russian neighbor state that you could you simply couldn't have dreamt of this time two years ago. But I'm afraid because the scale of the Russian attack is 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 so vastly outsizing anything that it's done in Syria, Chechnya, Georgia, Ukraine in 2014, that this requires a larger than ever response. And that, of course, is where the West the West falters and fails. It hasn't quite grasped the seriousness, the obsessiveness of, of this Russian invasion. Uh, its implications for Ukraine and beyond. So yes, there is indeed a bifurcation point just down the road. There is indeed a, uh, whether it be uh, elections in the United States, uh, which might produce a, an American president who no longer wishes to be in this war and can indeed end it in one day, as Donald Trump said, or whether it's simply the fact that this war is, is lost by, uh, by a certain sort of insipidness whereby we give Ukraine enough, we think we're giving Ukraine enough to survive, but not enough to win, but it doesn't even do that because 
the analyst in me says that Ukraine's energies are not necessarily inexhaustible. Yes, we know they're going to fight um, up until the end, but we don't quite know when that end will come. And the reality is, is that uh, this is the last thing I'll say, so it's not to, not to drone on Jonathan, but is this war can be won, lost, and drawn. It can be won if we do if we get it right. It can be lost if we make the mistakes or the fallacies that we outline in this report. Or it can end up in this protracted war, which does indeed, as you absolutely correctly say, uh, benefit Russia and uh, and 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 damage uh, Ukraine and in and damage that wider rules-based international order, as you say. Well, there's two two questions I want to fire. I'll, I'll before I forget them, I'll fire them both out, and we can tackle them separately. One, of course, is that this report was very much intended to influence the thinking ahead of the NATO summit in Vilnius. And so, one of the questions is going to be is, you know, how successful so far has the report uh, been? In, in shaping sort of critical decisions and delivery of systems. And we can touch on TACMs and F-16s, obviously, and the tardiness, uh, and as well as cluster munitions, which was a, a sort of positive from that. Uh, from that. I, I say positive. There are others who may disagree. I think it's a, it is a positive in the Ukraine context. The other question, of course, that emerges is you've outlined a scenario of a either a protracted stalemate or even a loss. And at the moment... I don't think anyone is contemplating really what a loss would mean. We're only contemplating the cost of, um, you know, this sort of slow incremental uh, victory as such uh, or, or stalemate. But the cost of a loss could far uh, outweigh uh, what uh, Ukraine has received so far. Um, it raises the prospect. And I think Anne Applebaum has started to mm -hmm. to to actually address this more than others. Yeah. Um the uh, as the as the Cassandra of international uh, uh, experts, um, but in Ukrainians now know how Russians treat them. They now know that this is genocidal. Um, a Russian victory would surely mean the majority of Ukraine's population decamping into Europe. I mean, the implications are extraordinary. Yeah, shall I take both your questions at once? I mean, pretty challenging questions. Shall I take them both in 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 the order you asked, or how? Do yes, you... let's tackle them in order. Yes, or okay. whichever so, way you want. Yeah, no, well, thank you, and um, that's a real challenge. So, well, in terms of how successful has the report been uh, thus far? I mean, that is a difficult thing to measure just one and a half months after publication. In general, I, I must admit, I, I try to be a little bit humble about these things, whereby I feel that perhaps over time ourselves and other like-minded analysts probably have had a, a role in hardening, um, stiffening spines, hardening thing, hardening thinking on, on Russia, where it was loose and woolly at times before, although the Russians have done a pretty good job of hardening that thinking themselves by their own actions, naturally. So I think in a way, Vladimir Putin can take more credit than we can in, 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 a, in a perverse sense. Obviously, Vilnius, which you mentioned, was a disappointment. It was a disappointment because it was so disingenuous, Jonathan. I mean, it's all very well to say, yes, Ukraine will not be a member of NATO now, because that, that's, that seems reasonable. That is not what the Ukrainians were asking, to be clear. They were asking to be a, a member of NATO as soon as the war was over, however it was over. And that, of course, was not agreed to either. And again, it was left vague. It was fudged. So it, in, a, in a way, I feel we didn't come a lot further than we had done back in Bucharest 2008, I'm sorry to say. So we've obviously got a long way to go. And I have to say that that President Biden does share some of the burden and blame for this in the sense that it was he and the Germans, uh, I feel, who were particularly against uh, any harder um, uh, announcement or, 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 or a set of promises to, to, towards Ukraine, I'm afraid to say. So that's where that's where it lies. The French seem to have come around. The Brits probably could have been persuaded to come around. Um, obviously, you're always going to have trouble with the Hungarians and the Turks, but I, I feel that, again, that could have been done by sort of um, weight of momentum in a sense. But uh, I, it, it's clear that the, the Americans, having been in America myself just last week, in certain departments there, uh, their thinking is uh, swayed by fears of escalation. Um, and and whether that, whether that whether, I think it's perverse to, to believe that that the Russians would escalate if Ukraine were offered membership in another club. Um, I can just about understand it, that they believe that if there was to be some sort of rout um, of the uh, of Russian forces, then that would that would push for Russians into uh, into a desperate move. Although as it happens, I don't believe that either. I think that is, uh, that is less than likely and, and is part of Russia's tactic to self-deter. 
but certainly membership in a club would have no deleterious consequences whatsoever. So that that is especially um, extraordinary, and I think you know runs against the tide of where history is going. So that's that, that's 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 what I would say in terms of you know shaping delivery. I'm afraid that uh, you know poor academic slash think tankers influence is rightly limited. Um, but at the same time, of course, we do have unfiltered, experienced views, um, and policymakers are often not um, deeply um, entrenched in the ways of Russia uh, and have come to these from, from different fields of expertise or perhaps no specific expertise whatsoever. So obviously that has to be taken into account, but they would tell us that they have different uh, a number of different equities on their plate, which I assume include financial um, uh, you know, and possibly and, and, and other and other big issues in international relations from climate change to um, uh, you know, Islamic fundamentalism, uh, etc. So, I, so I, I understand the point. I would also say, however, this is the big issue of our time. This is the war we've been preparing for. And frankly, if we you can't score the second goal before you scored the first and you can't you can't solve the, the longer term or medium term problems before you've solved the immediate one. And a, now, a supplemental question yeah, there. I'll sure, jump yeah, in yeah. with one. Yeah, um, and that I, I've watched, let's say, on Times Radio and others, you know, a lot of senior uh, sort of politicians who ostensibly are very pro-Ukrainian. Now, you will have a lot more direct contact than, 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 than I would with 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 any of those. One thing I often pick up in their language which you don't get from academics and analysts is a lot of assumptions sort of assumptive thinking but also <laughs> even when they're pro-ukrainian you yeah. still get language which uh, tends mm -hmm. to project their own thinking their own frameworks their own understanding yeah. of the world onto the situation and you know you and others like Keir will say that these assumptions more often than wrong than not are entirely wrong yeah i'm, I'm afraid you you put it much more eloquently than i'm afraid i can but you're you're right. You know what? I like the way you put it. Ostensibly pro-Ukrainian, you just said, and and of course, no no one's going to be anti-Ukrainian. No one's going to be pro-Russian, or very few people, except for you know, the, you know a, a real bunch of uh, useful idiot crazies. But for the most part, um, of course, people are are broadly uh, pro-Ukrainian. But it's it's you know it's exemplified in that language uh, mantra of the Americans again. They say they will support Ukraine. For as long as it takes. The question is, is, what does it mean in that in that sentence? So they give themselves wriggle room because they're not in, they're not fully convincing enough. Um, they haven't convinced themselves, and they haven't convinced. They don't, therefore don't wish to convince others again of the seriousness of a situation and need to to see this through. Um, actually, this is a strategic communications challenge, uh, whereby we need to be much more forthright on the need for an unambiguous. Ukrainian victory, and I'm afraid that means commensurately um, an unambiguous Russian defeat, flip sides of the same coin. So you're right, in uh, these uh, high-ranking senior politicians are overly cautious in, in this, and that of course leads Russia to be encouraged into how far it can go. If you're not clear with the Russians um, about uh, red lines, then of course they will stamp all over your sort of blurry ones. Somebody once said that strategic ambiguity may be a useful device in international relations, but it's been disastrous for Russia policy. I'm conscious I didn't fully um, get a chance to, to point you to answer your question, gentlemen, on contemplating a loss. Yes, and, and I and I, I, I you know, I'm almost anxious to avoid it because it's um it's a real toughie. Credit to, to Anne, as you say, but and you know what? I mean, it, it is almost too awful to think about. I mean, it is very hard to quite contemplate a world in which. Uh, Russia has overrun Ukraine, uh, the government in Kiev is decapitated, um, and the West simply is in a flap and wonders what is coming next. One thing seems certain is that Ukraine is not the limit of Vladimir Putin's appetite. I don't want to be quite so crass as to say he just wants the Soviet Union redux, um, but effectively, he, it depends. I mean, you can put it any way you want to. I mean, whether he wants a, uh, a cordon sanitaire around Russia, a buffer zone, a grey zone, control, soil. It, you know, I mean, we could argue about these things. But the reality is, is that he there is a map in his mind which conforms to the world, which, which the world that looked like in uh, in Soviet times. And so therefore, there is an east-west divide. Uh, in his mind, and, and plenty of countries, 
including even the Warsaw Pact countries, um, including the Balkans, but obviously the post-Soviet states um, of 1991, uh, they, they are all, in his view, more Russian than Western um, and more belonging to his side of that curtain um, than, if you like, ours. But of course, that is such an antediluvian view. I mean, that is very that that goes against the wishes of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of sorry, I mean, million. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Million. I mean, there's there's 145 million people in Russia, but there's actually another 145 million people living in the other post-Soviet states alone. If you add the Balkans and um, uh, and and the Warsaw Pact countries to that, then you get to you get to upwards, you know, beyond 250 million. So the reality is is that that is a, a viewpoint that is honestly unacceptable, uh, not just to uh, some you know, liberal Western academic, but it, it's simply unacceptable if, you, if we wish the world to continue broadly as it did. It simply means the end of what we sort of sometimes highfalutingly uh, pretentiously call the Westphalian order, you know, the liberal international order. And, 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 and from there, you know, stuff just begins to break down um, and you begin to get fortress countries um, and, and concerts of great powers. And the world is, is nothing like as progressive um, as we thought it might be uh, in the 1990s. Not that I angelicized the 1990s, but I at least thought mistakenly that we were headed broadly in the right direction, albeit one step forward, two steps back, vice versa. Um, but this would be this would be 10 steps back, Jonathan. And, and of course, I mean, I think one of the reasons why this channel exists is to shine a light on exactly that. And it's not, you know, the liberal order for, for its own sake. It's not the liberal order for um, necessarily even sort of, you know, minority views um, and rights and so on. And this is part of it. It's about creating an environment where we can actually tackle the major problems we face um, mm -hmm. and reducing sectional interests. And I think... What's interesting about, you know, the Russian approach is that, uh, you know, if you go back to that antediluvianism, um, it's far less likely uh, that that will resolve the problems and issues that we're faced with. Absolutely. It's not such an open scientific or technological environment. It's not so productive uh, as the liberal societies tend to be. Yeah, I mean, COVID, I mean, I, I'm, I'm getting off my area of expertise here, so forgive me. But at the end of the day, COVID is a clear example of where you need you know, uh, a united planetary front in order to de defeat something which is, you know, you know, obviously um, transgresses borders, um, and and that, that, and so, so again, you know, if you have this kind of factionalism or sectionalism, as you said, then that that actually will prevent our ability to fight devastating threats, be they from be they virological or, or from artificial intelligence, in in the more far flung future or maybe the immediate future. What do we know? But uh, but I mean, so yeah, I do feel that unfortunately. Russia is putting a stop on, uh, you know, wider human progress at the want of a, you know, again, a, a pretentious comment, uh, you know, and we, we seem to be fighting this sort of slightly old fashioned war, partly in the sense that it is a conventional kinetic war, uh, and partly because it's against, if you like, the old enemy of the Russians, you know, redux Soviets. Mm -hmm. So, so this is, this is undoubtedly a, a block in the road of human progress. But on the other hand, you know, before we all sort of, you know, go home and slit our wrists, Jonathan, then, 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 then oh, at the same time, I think I can see a silver lining here as well. Um, uh, there are varying degrees of optimism amongst my team who you'll be interviewing. Um, I, I'm not a, a natural pessimist, although I, I can see how you can wake up uh, uh, in bed in the morning and think that way. But in fact, if we get this right, of course, then the reverse is true of what I've just been saying. And in fact, you know, you can ultimately have uh, uh, a Russia which undergoes a kind of de-Sovietization, albeit 30 years late. You can have a Russia which... Um, come to terms with the crimes of its recent and 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 and, and less than recent past uh and you can you can show other areas of a non-democratic world that invasions are the wrong path because and you will be soundly beaten uh if you attempt to do so mm. so i can at least see a way whereby if we do sort of hold together on this particular um small section of a the planet then uh it will have you know, it's already had progressive effects in terms of, say, you know, uh, the energy tra uh, tra um, transformation. You know, where this is this is undoubtedly led to a greening of energy in a more in a faster timeline than it would otherwise have done. Perhaps in the immediate, there are serious environmental consequences, and I'm not going to gloss over that. But in the longer term, 
this 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 just makes people more antipathetic towards uh, oil and gas hydrocarbons than than they were even beforehand. So it has good practical as well as environmental reasons to do so. So so I I, I don't know. I mean I I, I think uh, I think sectionalism is 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 the great fear. But actually, there's there's a, there's a certain sort of promise at the end of it. But again, as long as we don't fall into these bear traps. And this ties in very interestingly, I think, with the next question. I mean, one of my interviews, uh, guests recently was Alexander Etkin, who takes mm. a very sort yeah. of, uh, I would say, sort of, it combines those interesting aspects of political analysis yes. of, of Russia with yeah. deep view, um, but it also relates it back to uh, the material of the economy. And oil, of course, is being used by Russia as a weapon. It's being used by us as a counter weapon in sanctions. But actually what Russia is fighting against is a world that is moving beyond its economic base. So it fundamentally as an autocratic extraction-based economy, that's that's all it's got. It's a one kind of trick pony. <laughs> and the world's moving beyond. I mean, this could be the last gasp of that system. And of course, they've got a demographic time bomb as well. Do you think any of that features in Putin's thinking? He must believe it. He must understand that at some, you know, at some level that dare not speak its name, uh, I suppose. Because, but, uh, but as you say, yeah, uh, Russia really, the one trick pony is a good one, but it, it's, uh, I don't know, you know, where you live or anything, Jonathan, but I mean, probably in most people's houses, there's just nothing Russian in there. And, uh, you know, because nobody wants anything that is made by the Russians. <laughs> you know, they don't have a, they don't have a monopoly on vodka anymore or, or, or antivirus software, which nobody wants anyway because it's got bugs in it or worse. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, they certainly don't want Russian cars or, or anything like that. So, so yes, all they've ever really wanted is, is, is Russia as a quarry from which to extract energy. And um, that in itself is a failing proposition. So for a country, as I say, of 150 odd million people, slightly less, um, and uh, which you know, is trying to, you know, uh, I suppose as well, which has not really tried to um, exculpate itself from its past, uh, when you consider, you know, anything from Lenin's tomb to, um, to the, you know, the rejoicing of Joseph Stalin as, you know, the greatest human being who ever existed. It's, it's, it, it doesn't show a great deal of intent to, to move with the times, as you say, and I, I and yeah, I mean, again, those pessimists we're talking about, and which I suppose I have to come into this category now. I mean, would probably say Russia is doomed, but it's actually too big with the wrong climatic conditions um, uh, to prosper as a country. It's just ungovernable. It's always been that way, even its relatively small periods of enlightened of, of enlightenment have been, you know, shortly and sharply cut off. Um, over history. Um, now, that's not to say that the future has to look like history, but it's just to say that I think you have to come to terms with your history in order to be able to move on. And if you're still living that, if you still think Russia's golden age or glory days were 50, 70 years ago, um, then absolutely, you'll try to recreate that and, and, and repeat it. But of course, the rest of the world has indeed moved on technologically, um, culturally, uh, gastronomically, uh, in, in any in any sense, and Russia seems to have sort of stayed that way uh, over time. It's astonishing, I'm afraid, how little Russia has changed. Yes, you can see some gleaming buildings in Moscow and um, and such like, but for, the reality is is that I'm afraid, I mean, at a very basic level, then funding for R and D in Russia has been cut sharply off. So they simply can't progress in that sense either. I think yes, there's there's, there's far more um, I would say Russian sourced stuff in this house. Yeah. that's just on the outskirts of Oxford than in summers. Um, but it talks to uh, a golden age. You know, it's it's um, it's books. It's uh, it's books on artists. Yeah. Now, of course, I understand half of them Ukrainian and not right. Russian at all. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I have a, a, a handmade monopoly set somewhere, which uh, yeah. during hyperinflation, I actually used real real money to create it and, and beer tops. So that that's, you know. But it's nothing from this century. Uh, exactly. It's nothing, it's I mean, that's nothing. right. I mean, I'm, I'm the same in my. I mean, as a, as a recovering, you know, Russophile and reformed Russophile, I should say. And uh, uh, then, and it obviously, it's in my. And having spent a lot of time there in the past, then 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 I, then I have the same the same stuff in my house as perhaps you do in yours. But but these days, the more serious point is, is that we are now being encouraged, and rightly so, 
um, to, if you like, decolonize ourselves. And um, and if we were Moscow-centric before, and I, I'm, I'm certainly a, a sinner there, then, then perhaps again, perhaps the silver lining is that Ukrainian studies are entering into, you know, university curricula. Um, and that will hopefully head into South Caucasus and Central Asia a little bit more as well, where it's been limited to say the least. But uh, yeah, the, 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 the sin of um, russocentrism affected the corporate sector as well, of course, um, which meant that any money that flowed downwards or acrosswards uh, into the post-Soviet republics effectively went through Moscow first and they sort of gleaned off the cream. So I hope that, again, uh, you know, I, obviously I don't advocate stopping listening to Tchaikovsky. I, I, I mean, I just don't care. I mean, at the end of the day, but I do advocate the fact that we should widen our field of view a little bit more and understand the the richness and diversity um, of the other post-Soviet states, which is contrary to the to the Russian idea that Ukrainians are just confused Russians. Mm. I think that that's again, you know, you've read my mind there with the, with the next question, and that is an understanding that through Russia's behavior, appalling though it is, uh, it has uh, driven maybe a clarity of understanding. And of course, Ukraine was a bit of a closed book to most people, you know, myself included, um, even though the very first person I met in Moscow for the first <laughs> time in 1992 was Ukrainian rather than Russian, and already then was trying to explain the differences to me. Um, yeah. But I think here's the challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, the practical question is going to be how Western politicians deal with it. But that understanding is that, that Ukraine is not uh, a brotherly nation, uh, but it is a European culture that has been Russified. And that process is now reversing. This is a question because I'm interested to see yeah. whether you agree with this. Uh, yeah. and, and that Russia is, is uh, which Again, this talks back to the question we had earlier about how we constantly misinterpret Russia's intentions and actions, and we look at it as a European country. They're nominally Christian. They're yeah. white. They're this. They're that. They have superficially some of the same sort of cultural attributes. But it strikes me that it is actually a superficially Europeanized golden horde or Mongol horde, um, and 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 we we don't see uh, those those sort of historic roots. Um, it's only in a conflict like the one with Ukraine that it is absolutely exposed, but still perhaps misinterpreted. I know that's quite a sort of crude example, well, but it's, it's a it's a complex thought, uh, if I may, and I'll I'll attempt to keep up with it. But um, uh, you know what? Once upon a time, I do remember the the Ukrainians and the Russians um, at least thinking of each other in a competitive way. So you know, for example, if they were if the Ukrainians were playing Brazil at football then you know part of the russian mentality would want ukraine to win because they were you know kindred um you know, brethren um, and part of them would want them to lose because they were sort of inferior um and and not, not up to not up to scratch if you like but you're absolutely right but the russians do wheel out trot out this um mantra that it's not ukraine's fault that they're like this but it's being corrupted by by western influence um uh without any sort of again attempt to imagine the idea that this could be Ukraine's own uh, ambition uh, and desire. And of course, they look to the West and, you know, what it has to offer in all of its, you know, shabby glory or, or glorious shabbiness, whatever, whatever and, and, and see an obviously better model than that which the Russians can offer. Russia doesn't offer a model to almost anybody on the planet except, you know, the Eritreans and the North Koreans. And, and so, so, the, so the truth is, is that is that it's done it by it's done it to itself and it's done it by example. And as I said earlier, you know, you know, for one person, you know, in a, in a sense, in in a perverse sense, to be thanked for all this is is Vladimir Putin, who has turned the Ukrainians off of Russia for once and for all and forever, um, uh, in a way in which, honestly, the best of and most intense Western propaganda could never have done. Um, but I'm afraid, and you know, and, and, and if you like, an, an even more serious point. Obviously, that's left a great deal of psychological scarring because then it's down to us to worry about how these two nations will, who are geographically um, uh, and forever proximate, to it's 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 it, they will have to live together uh, one day after the fighting has stopped with these deep psychological scars, um, particularly on the Ukrainian side, of course, where there will be an understandable uh, I don't know what to call it, call it less, but but just, the word hatred has gone into my into my mind. For, for what Russia has inflicted upon them and for those hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian lives who, which have been lost. And I, I just don't know how where to begin there. And obviously that is a job 
that goes beyond international relations and politics and you know enters into the realm of of psychology and psychiatry but uh, i mean but, but but this is again i i come back to the slightly more bland point but this is the defining moment of our age um i used to think it was you know september 11 or or possibly even COVID, but actually it seems to be this so far anyway <laughs> Yes, and it's scale, brutality. Uh, it's it's got those echoes of the past. And is Chatham House are are the sort of you know colleagues and, and yourself edging towards some solutions here? You know, I'm thinking yeah. in terms of uh, Ukraine's role within the uh, EU, NATO, and the European sort of defence framework, as well as beefing up our own militaries, which have been sort of wound down. But there's another side to that, isn't there? That's only one side of the coin. The other side is what happens to Russia. And whether we could or should have a view on the kind of country that emerges from it. But there you have a problem, don't you? Because you've described Russia as almost in its current state, in its imperial ambition, uh, you know, non-viable in the modern world, which sort of implies that the only Russia we could deal with is 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 one that is non-imperial and quite possibly fragmented and unrecognizable from its yeah. current state but but many shy away from even thinking about that right. yeah so two two questions there as i understood it so first of all on, on, on the chatham house point if it's not too navel gazing for you then um uh obviously uh i i just run one department amongst well 13 in chatham house as it happens um, and so other people do look at this conflict from um, other perspectives. That's fairly reasonable. From a legal perspective, from an environmental perspective, from a nuclear proliferation perspective. And, and all of those obviously are very valid. And But we obviously look at it with our, if you like, to blow our own trumpet for a second, our, our deep experience um, of dealing with Russia over the ages. But it is important to have these other disciplines come in on it because that will help ultimately decision makers to... Um, to understand between the equities on place. Um, so I, and just just on a, on a on a very on a very sort of base note, then Chatham House doesn't have a single opinion, but uh, but but the the authors of this report, um, we we do we have come together in spite of our varying optimisms and pessimisms about about the future of Russia, which I'll come to you now because that was your your next question. Um, then I think we do we do have a view, uh, a combined view. Uh, which is which is um, manifested in the recommendations in the report um, that that ultimately I'm afraid there is a logic to the battlefield, and and that 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 is where this fight must be won for now. In in future, that's a, that's a different point. Then it, then, it, then it becomes a battle in terms of the hearts and minds of, of the Russians. But that's a that's in the long term. For now, I'm afraid uh, it's 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 actually removing Russians um, by hook or by crook from Ukrainian uh, internationally recognized territory. Um, in terms of the Russia we'll be dealing with, my God, I mean, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, there is a, uh, there is a, a, an interesting map I've seen. I'd love to show it to you, Jonathan, um, uh, called the, uh, the, the Federated States of Post-Russia, which just separates Russia out into the, in, into the different um, oblasts in, 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 and imagines that they will one day be free, as Chechnya attempted to be uh, back in the mid-1990s and was uh, you know, brought back with such violent um, uh, with such a violent response, but successfully, I suppose. Um, so the argument in this report is that it is very unlikely that we will see the breakup of Russia as a result of this war. There's simply no movement, no institutions, uh, no momentum for that to happen. Um, and so there's not so you need to in order for in order for that to happen, you need to have the stirrings of it at the beginning. And those have either been quelled or they were non-existent in the first place. That said, it is also a recommendation that we shouldn't be afraid of it to the extent that we self-deter. In other words, it would be perverse to worry about instability inside Russia when Russia is causing such instability outside of Russia. Um, so it, but it does, it is one of the in my experience and in my recent travels across Europe and uh and the US. It has been a key feature of policymakers' worries that uh, that that you cause a chain reaction from the front line back in the back through to Moscow. Uh, Moscow collapses politically. Um, then there's a, a, a de facto civil war, and from that followed loose nukes. Now, quite honestly, I think there's quite a lot of problems in the in that chain, and I don't think that is uh, a likely possibility. But policymakers will tell you. 
that it would be neglectful if they did not consider that possibility. And whilst that is a reasonable statement, again, if you follow it reductio ad absurdium, then actually it would mean you can't do anything to Russia as a result of this because you're afraid of causing uh, of co causing a Russian collapse. But the only thing that will ultimately cause a Russian collapse, and it, it has done throughout history uh, several times, is Russia and the Russians themselves. Um, it's not the West. We, you know, even we we simply don't have that kind of power. We do have a great deal of power which we don't use. Uh, Russia has a great uh, has not as much power which it does use. Um, but we we but we uh, I, I wouldn't credit us with with that kind of ability to to foment a revolution which which we, a revolution which we don't actually want, despite Putin warning of that at least since I think Beslan in two thousand and four. And that that really sort of prompts another question there, and it gets us on to some of the so-called sort of fallacies. We've mentioned a few already through the course of this, and this is the idea that our weakness, our failure to use our power strategically um, is actually a provocation for Putin. You know, we often will find refuge in words. Putin is perhaps looking out for actions. Words mean absolutely nothing it's what you actually do and what you show that you are willing to do. And this talks into a lot of the Russian narratives, doesn't it, which are designed to stop the West taking action, stop the West from creating very clear red lines that it sticks to. Words like escalation do not provoke Russia. You know, we're preventing a future peace or we're prejudicing no negotiations, no none of which in reality, I think, right. have any basis. But they do have a deterrent value on Western action. I mean, absolutely. Russia has been enormously successful in this over the years. When you think about what Russia has managed to get away with, uh, effectively, with only the lightest of um, responses from, you know, putting of chemical weapons and radiological weapons onto UK soil to manipulating elections in, you know, in the world's largest democracy, um to uh, you know instigating wars you know killing tens of thousands of people in in, in syria then uh, these have, this has been done with with almost no pushback whatsoever you know force three sanctions as opposed to the force eight ones i was talking about earlier so you're right i mean whether that's provocation or encouragement we, you know we can quibble about uh, about the semantics but the truth is is that if you are not told in no uncertain in, in no uh uncertain terms sorry that uh that actions will have consequences and of course that means you have to you have to follow through on those consequences if it comes to it you have to have your bluff be called um if they believe it to be a bluff then then clearly it's going to go on and, and similarly putin is a gambler quite honestly and he's thrown the dice several times and he's he's won and that's what gamblers do if they if they keep winning then they keep on gambling right so it, again one only hopes that this time you know that that enough is enough, and that the West does come to its senses and realizes that actually Russia has to be stopped, and that dictatorships don't get to have security concerns, and they don't get to have buffer zones or cordon sanitaires. So, but but again, whether you or I have enough faith in Western governments to fully come to the appropriate operational conclusion, I, I'm not yet certain. It suggests as well, let's get on to the sort of causes of war because they are much discussed, and I think will be even more discussed. After uh, you know this, this current round of, uh, of intense aggression is is over. However, it does end, um, and I guess we have to look back to 2014 and the failure to hold Russia to account there um, for the full scale war that's happening now. Also, potentially the failure to arm Ukraine properly with even the most basic defensive weapons prior to the full scale war, let alone you know more aggressive armaments. Um, so let's say we bear, rather than NATO provoking Russia, but we actually bear uh, some responsibility for preventing to deter Russia. Um, which voices were calling for us to be more robust in the years from 2014 onwards? And why were they ignored? And are they continuing in some respects to not uh, not have the attention they deserve? I honestly, Jonathan, I can, I can think of no international leader, no head of state, who actually was sufficiently direct and bold with Vladimir Putin after 2014, or if you prefer, after 2008. Of course, there is immediate international condemnation, but that quickly fades and dilutes 
into an, a certain accommodation. Of course, they wouldn't use that word naturally. They're far too smart and well-trained in, in how they speak to the media to, to, do, to do that. But they seem to come to a realization that um, Russia is too big to fail or that Russia has to be dealt with in some way, you know, that Russia is integrated into the global um, economy and thus can't be removed from it. Um, these were sort of mantras or, 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 or truisms that were held dear, which have now been exposed because of the scale of this current war. Uh, so, uh, but, but I, I absolutely agree with you that although, of course, it's important not to overly self-flagellate so that we don't take away the agency from Russia, which has caused this, then, then absolutely the fail our failures in the past to hold Russia to its commitments, quite honestly, whether that be a, a five-point peace plan in Georgia or a Minsk agreement in uh, 2014, um, I think it's those failures which have absolutely led uh, to this um, to this uh, to, to the situation we are in today. We have simply not told we've not put down a stop sign for Putin. Um, and you know, even if we had have done, by the way, I, it's not that he would necessarily not have trampled all over it. But we, the point is, we didn't try. Would you agree with the statement that the failure to really challenge Russia in 2014 um, are some of the most significant roots of the current crisis? I, I would agree with it 110%. Um, and it, it's worse than that, of course, because unfortunately, Western politicians, decision makers, and even analysts don't like to admit their mistakes, do they? So those who were in some way involved in making policy at that time you know they, they, they they're not willing to i mean angela merkel in germany is a great example of this by the way as somebody who seems to be unrepentant about uh having attempted to you know bring russia in and 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 and, and not take a harder line and you know even though Nord stream 2 came out in her constituency um was 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 kind of blind to this up until the end for an exceptionally intelligent politician by the way um perhaps the leading politician of her generation in so many ways but uh, but I'm afraid uh we're all human beings first and foremost and that means that we are naturally defensive about our record but that of course doesn't quite explain why subsequent politicians new politicians who have not who were not around in 2014 or much less 2008 why they still cling to those attitudes and i think it's i suppose it's an attempt to be reasonable it's an attempt to find compromise it's an attempt to you know it's just to it's, it's a it's a naive belief that there's a diplomatic solution to everything but i guess that the issue of compromise which outwardly sounds good is you know if i put the question back to you almost a little bit rhetorically you know what part of russia's argument do you compromise with um, if there were anything there, I would love to hear it. But at the end of the day, it's a country that, you know, likes to, um, you know, take the whole cake and then come away with half the cake and, uh, you know, come back for the other half, you know, later on down the road. So it's just so I'm afraid. Yeah, we we absolutely are culpable, not, as I say, to self-flagellate too much, because obviously it was Vladimir Putin who signed the authorization to annex Crimea or to invade um, Ukraine in in 2022, but uh, but but I think it's a reasonable supposition. Obviously, you can't prove a negative. That had we put in place the measures in 2014 um, or between 2014 and 2022, that we did after 2022, by which I mean rearming Ukraine, sanctioning Russia more heavily, being clearer about our intentions um, and our interests then actually 2022 would not have happened. I can't prove that, of course, nobody ever can. But, you know, it's certainly not the case that we were too hard and that they were and they were reacting against that. The, the, the only real logic to this situation is that we unfortunately um, believed that um, the Russians, Russia's interests and our interests were ultimately the same. And it was all, uh, you know, a slight misunderstanding um, or even a major misunderstanding, but it could be it could be managed. And unfortunately, this is not a problem that can be managed. And that really leads on to the last question. I know the paper um, written by the multiple authors deals with various fallacies. Um, 
but you've written the conclusion on this and uh, i i think it's more compelling you know in subsequent episodes we're going to be looking at the individual fallacies here i think the most important question then is let's assume a ukrainian victory let's assume that uh, putin is bluffing and that when he is pushed back hard he does what we're not expecting and and uh, and at some point he's either deposed or he simply makes up a story and withdraw his troops and said look we've denazified ukraine it's all over hooray let's all go home um at that point, the mistakes of the past potentially might rear their heads again. Um, do you fear a scenario where we forget these hard uh, learned lessons of the last year and a half and we then seek to accommodate Russia? We see through a mixture of self-interest, i.e., you know, idealism and blinkeredness to try and incorporate reincorporate them back into the global system without there having been systemic change or addressing what I think is very important, which is the decolonization narrative uh, of a future Russia. Okay. Uh, yeah, most important question to last, of course. Um, and I I am forced to agree with, you know, the premise of your question, which, which is that, you know, do again, do we have enough faith in our politicians uh, and our decision makers not to make mistakes of the past and not to believe that you know that neutrality is an acceptable um outcome that that, that russia can be uh uh managed or, or compromised with and 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 it's history has shown i'm sorry to say that we are initially outraged by russia's actions for you know two weeks, three weeks, five weeks even. And then we begin to let the debate dilute. And obviously to you and me, then, you know, the the downing of um, MH17, the killing of 298 people on board, is as awful now as it was when it happened uh, eight years ago. But but of course, I think in people's memories that, you know, it fades and... Um, and they're not willing to, to sort of use that, even though it is as relevant an argument or relevant a, a crime now as it was then. So all of those atrocities, and there are dozens, aren't there, over the years, somehow get, yeah, time lends a dilution effect. Um, and we want to we want to make good on it. And whether it's the, the corporate lobby or the diplomatic lobby or the academic lobby in some cases, um, wishing to somehow not go too hard on Russia because they fear some form of Versailles situation. Um, obviously, that that I mean, I'm I'm trading into Keir's chapter here, as it happens, as we mentioned, Keir Jonathan. But but you know that that ignores the point that actually we're we're not in we're not in 1917. We're in 1939. You know, I'm afraid the Russians have been um, calling us uh, as trying to put the boot into Russia since. You and I were in, in Russia in, in the early 1990s, quite frankly, and it's, it hasn't really stopped since. It's just that Putin's made a career of it. So uh, I, I'm afraid that there is an eagerness in too many influential people to forget what's happened, as you say, and just get back to business as usual, even if that's an awkward, um, occasionally violent um and unthinking as we do russia then that is to them if they have a you know a bottom line to consider or a diplomatic career to consider that is to them a better situation than fighting for the long term through ukraine's uh through backing ukraine's sovereignty and independence that for them is too difficult a proposition so they'd rather go with the easier proposition of just kind of sweeping it under the carpet mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, one of the predictions I made in, in a video, I think some people might find a little surprising, you know, but that is that I think there is far more long term planning and intent within Russia, even if Putin is losing the plot, yeah. there will be people I suspect who are planning the next phase of Russia's evolution. And actually, I'm not sure they're going to leave it to the Z patriots to fill that vacuum. And uh, Right. I suspect that Russia's next regime will be nominally liberal and that we will openly embrace it, but it'll just be another chimera, another puppet facade. Yeah. 
I couldn't agree more. I know you look, I mean, I, I mean, I, I agree with that. And the danger is almost more of you have a, if you like, a wolf in sheep's clothing, if you like, or, or, or somebody who is nominally liberal and espouses some form of liberalism because those words escape from his mouth, probably as a him, um, um, but and, and therefore requires a relinquishment of sanctions because he would say that he is being pressured by the party of war and he must save Russia or us from Russia, if you like. Um, but then there is a danger that that allows Russia to regroup, rearm. Um, that person is either either becomes um, uh, a hawk or less liberal or less or was never liberal in the first place, you know, or has a, undergoes some sort of Viktor Orban like transformation, or if you prefer Vladimir Putin transformation like transformation, um, and that we have this for ourselves, which is why I'm afraid. We need to get to the root of it. Once we've solved the kinetic problem in Ukraine, we need to get to the root of problem in Russia. I think that is, that is a strong place to end on. And, and you know, no matter what our relations with Russia, I think what you said is incredibly important. Make sure we don't forget Ukraine. Make sure we bring them into the fold and ensure they have very strong red lines and are armed to the teeth so they are able to defend that. I mean, is that an easier proposition for us or is that also a difficult problem i think you know do you know you spoke to me a second ago about decolonization and this is something we've got to get through in our minds as well as russians so the russians have got to undergo decolonization but too many of the people of you know yours and my generation and maybe a bit older maybe even a bit younger they still see that region as you know some sort of wider russia um greater russia you know where russia where, where countries are naturally in orbit nothing was more disappointing and I think I forget the date. You have to forgive me. I think it was in about 2015. And and um, Barack Obama said as president that these countries will always naturally be in Russia's orbit. That, unfortunately, was, uh, you know, very Cold War thinking. And that's where you need to get away from that. Definitely. Well, James, it's been hugely enlightening. I know the audience are going to love your insights here, uh, despite the fact I seem to have elicited from you a sort of glass half full rather than your natural glass. Uh, <laughs> no, half empty, rather, rather than your natural glass half full. But uh, hopefully we can work through these. Thank you so much for supporting this video and, of course, subsequent videos with your team and colleagues that we'll be doing. Well, no, it, we, it is we who are indebted to you. Thank you very much, Jonathan.